welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. Today's topic is the newest front in America's war on terror, Africa. Last October, many Americans were surprised to learn about the deaths of four U.S. soldiers in Niger when militants associated with the Islamic State ambushed them. Few Americans at that point could have told you that Niger was part of the broader war on terror, but in fact it represents just a small part of what has been a steadily expanding U.S. military presence in Africa. Joining us today to make sense of this trend and where it's headed is Bronwyn Bruton, the Deputy Director of the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council and someone who has studied conflict in Africa quite closely for many years. Brahman, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, let's start, as always, with some news tidbits. It's been another newsy week or two in D.C. Uh, so McMaster is out. John Bolton is in as the new security advisor to Trump. What do we expect now? Spike in antidepressant prescriptions at the D.C. area, perhaps? Uh, I, I haven't seen anybody suggest that he's going to be good, really. And I'm not sure if you guys have. But I, I think the, the consensus appears to be that he's either going to be very worrying, um, possibly not a great national security advisor, or an absolutely disastrous one. That's kind of the range of possibilities people seem to be forecasting. I'm not really sure if anyone's actually praised him yet. Well, he, he is at least a person who has you know, genuine experience in the field. Um, you know, he his political views are not ones that I, you know, I find very reassuring in the current climate. But um, you know, at least he he knows what he's doing. Yeah. The the question is, what is he going to do? I I my concern, I guess, from a you know taking the the politics out of it for just a minute, uh, which you know you can have various opinions on but as a as a personality and the you know the history his track record in in government seems to be ill suited it seems to me to play the particular role of national security advisor the brent scowcroft sort of baseline model of the honest broker who does a really good job of bringing together all the opinions and and policy options uh, across government to the president for the president's I, I do not see bolton being that kind of guy i see him being the here's what i want and i'm going to stuff all the other stuff uh down at the staff level and i'm going to tell trump what to do I, th that's my take on how he seems to operate uh, he, he was operating like that when he wasn't the NSA yet. I mean, he was telling Trump what to do. I, I find it hard to believe he's going to be an honest broker. At the same time, I think you could probably, and, and many people have made the same claim about Susan Rice during the Obama administration, that in terms of honest brokering, I, she had a very, very heavy hand um, in guiding policy and in pushing her own prescription. So it, I don't know. We have this idea in our heads of what a national security advisor is supposed to be, but in practice, it's rarely... Uh, you know, we, we rarely see that ideal. And we do have such a tendency to whitewash the past when we talk about particularly the Trump administration. Things that actually are entirely, you know, quote unquote normal. We're saying, oh, Trump is doing this and it's so terrible and it's so awful. And actually, there's lots of precedents, even in the last couple of administrations, as you point out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have said Susan Rice was my model for a national security advisor either. So, but good point. I mean, you know, not all bad things are new. Some of them are just the same old bad things. Uh, okay. So um, we had a visitor last week in, in Washington, Saudi uh, Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, what, were, what were some big takeaways? Well, I, I could probably talk for a couple of hours about this, so someone should cut me off. Um, but 
he didn't receive perhaps as warm a welcome as I think the Saudis are, are used to receiving here in DC. And that's that's interesting. That's a big change. Um, so even though he was warmly welcomed at the White House, um, there was a big vote on Yemen on Capitol Hill the day he arrived, which actually came pretty close to passing and pulling back US support for the war in Yemen, even though it eventually failed. Um, and there were a lot of um, sort of negative op-eds and pieces on the TV talking about, again, the Saudi role in Yemen, their role elsewhere in the region, talking about his uh, corruption crackdowns domestically, um, and, and all of it in a fairly negative light, which isn't usual for, for Saudi leaders. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, certainly um, you, you didn't see any... Um fuzzy, happy uh, pictures of, of Trump and, and a bunch of Saudi guys with their hands on a glowing orb. Um, so it wasn't as, as fancy and, and sort of, um, you know, glitzy. But but at the same time, how, how could anything, any state visit, given what's going on in Washington today, seem well organized and, and you know, there, no one has any attention left for anything else other than Trump. I mean, if your name's not Donald Trump, it's just not much news these days. Well, you know, I'll make two two additional points about it. The first is that, you know, there wasn't an orb, but Trump did roll out a bunch of big signs um, and spent a lot of time talking about basically the Saudi budgetary contribution to the U.S. defense industry. And uh, the, all the rumors are, the reports are that Mohammed bin Salman was actually quite insulted by this. I mean, imagine how you'd feel if you basically showed up to a meeting and then the other person spent the entire time talking about how you were just bankrolling them and that was your only function. So, so th there are times signs of tension there, even if the Trump administration is really Saudi-friendly. Then the second thing I will point out is he's actually not left the US yet, Mohammed bin Salman. He's been here a week. He's out uh, in the country meeting with tech leaders, talking about Saudi economic reforms, trying to get them to invest in Saudi Arabia. No idea how successful that's going to be, but the big purpose of his visit wasn't actually Washington. Probably good for him. Uh, okay, last last tidbit. We have another country, this time Egypt, about to have, uh, I'm going to use air quotes here, an election um, where the outcome is, you know, already known. Um, but unlike Russia, where, you know, you're having a fake election in a fairly stable political climate, Egypt is, I think, far from what you'd call a stable political climate. Um, does this election matter? What does this mean for, for Egypt? You know, um, I, I think elections always matter. Um, but as you said, it, it is a foregone conclusion, and it's hard to see what, what kind of shift in the balance of power it's going to produce, even regionally. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting things happening regionally between Egypt and Ethiopia and Egypt and other partners that I hope we'll talk a little bit more about as we get into the the substance of the show as well. Yeah, you know, one of the, the really sort of interesting things about Egypt is this is a a fairly standard authoritarian state election, right, where there is an opposing candidate, but his campaign manager won't even say vote for my candidate. He says, vote for any of the candidates. We just want you to vote. Um, but Egypt has, in its very recent history, relatively free and open elections right after the Arab Spring. And so the population remembers that. They know that this is a sham and that they're not getting free elections anymore. So, you know, Perhaps not an issue today, but that is going to become an issue over time, presumably. I don't see this election helping Egypt's long term. I mean, you know, this is papering over what eventually will be big, big, big fissures again, one assumes, in, in Egyptian society. All right. OK, time for the surprise question of the day. We're, we're using a new one. So get ready. Uh, what was the first book you read in international relations or international security that really blew you away or maybe caused you to go into the field in the first place? Okay. Um, well, 
I'm embarrassed to say that when you ask me that question, absolutely nothing comes to mind. <laughs> absolutely nothing comes to mind. And uh, I think um, if, if I were to be totally and completely honest, um, I would have to say that the reason I went into international relations was as an Africanist, person who was born and raised in Africa, worked a lot in Africa over the years. I wasn't reading books that were blowing my mind and making me think, wow, that's a, you know, that's a great description of what's happening in Africa or in, um, in particular African countries. And uh, if anything, I actually felt um, completely horrified by the inaccuracies that I was seeing in the press and in, in print and in publications about the African continent, and specifically, in my case, um, about the conflict in Somalia. Um, back in 2006, when the Union of Islamic Courts took over Somalia briefly, the U.S. was very busily accusing um, the Union of, of being controlled by al-Qaeda. I was hearing things that were completely different from the, you know, the hundreds of NGOs that I was working with inside of Somalia and friends that I had inside of Somalia. And that, um, that, that, you know, just dissonance between what I saw as the reality on the ground and what was being reported was actually what drove me to enter the think tank field and, and try to do a better job of, of presenting um, what was really happening. Yeah, I actually, I have to ask just a follow up then, has that improved over time, do you think? You know, uh, on the margins, I think that U.S. policy in Somalia has improved. I mean, I, I think in the first place that since um, since the initial horrific blunder um, uh, that took place in 2006, 2007, when Ethiopia was provided U.S. backing for its invasion of Somalia, um, which did indeed destroy the Union of Islamic Courts, but unfortunately created al-Shabaab, which has turned into a virulent terrorist organization that's spreading over all of East Africa at this moment. Um, since then, I think there's been a better understanding that the situation in Somalia is a little bit more like the situation in the Middle East in the sense that um, there are a lot of different agendas. And the Somalis are not sort of, of blindly following al-Qaeda's guidance. They're a very difficult bunch to work with, and there are, are alliances of convenience that are very fragile. And I think the U.S. has a good awareness of that, but hasn't figured out how to tactically take advantage yet. Um, the U.S. is still doing that same thing that it's been doing for many decades, which is to say, this is the government. If there isn't a government, we're going to create the government. We're going to back it. We're going to point to it. And we're going to expect everybody to fall in line because that's our horse in the race. And it really has worked not at all. Not at all. <laughs> in Somalia. And the U.S. has been doing it for more than a decade. And even though the situation in Somalia is becoming worse and worse and um, we're really staring at the clock in terms of, of the time we have left to pursue this intervention. Um, it's relied on the presence of African Union peacekeeping forces, um, which are getting tired um, and ready to pull out. But despite the fact that you know there, there really is an end point in sight, I don't think the U.S. has any strategy at all for what comes next. So in the grand scheme, I would say no, not much has been learned. <laughs> Well, that's depressing to start with. All right. Well, let's back up a little bit um, and, and get into our and get into this topic. Um, and because I'm going to guess most of our listeners don't spend a lot of time uh, thinking about or reading about Africa. Um, let's let's get a little background. Um, you know, the war on terror from the United States perspective starts in Afghanistan and 
for some reason, Iraq uh, back in, after 9-11. Um, but then AFRICOM is, is founded uh, officially in 2007. What was the original, uh, you know, initial reason for that? Was it all terrorism or, or was there something else uh, as well? Um, the rollout of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, is one of the biggest blunders unfortunately, in, in military, U.S. military history in Africa. Um, there's no reason for the U.S. not to have an Africa command. It has a command on every other continent. Um, and so, it, in theory, there's nothing wrong with it. But it really was um, spoken about and perceived of as a militarization of U.S. policy in Africa. Um, the U.S. had to work long and hard to try to find a place to host the U.S. Africa Command on the African continent. Never managed to do it because public perception of the command was so negative. And so it, it wound up actually being housed in Stuttgart, Germany, which is quite a long way away from Africa. Um, and it, and there's really never been any serious discussion of, of relocating the command to the African continent since then. Um, unfortunately, the, the launch of the command in 2007 also coincided with a development in Somalia, which was that the U.S. Um, launched a series of airstrikes in January of that year on Somali territory. It was really the first time that the U.S. had bombed Africa in a long time. And that development alongside the launching of AFRICOM, again, really cemented the perception that that this was the, the hardening of U.S. policy and, and represented a very negative development as, as far as Africans were concerned. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so was the founding of AFRICOM basically uh, about terrorism? Was it about expanding the war on terror, at least, you know, domestically here in the U.S.? Or was it portrayed as something else? Um, well, in the U.S., you know, terrorism is is generally a great excuse for doing something. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to sound cynical when I say that, but the reality is that a lot of things are about terrorism in the U.S. And, and the primary purpose of our military at this point is to defend Americans against terrorism. You know, we are talking about a time that's only five or six years after 9-11. And so, yeah, terrorism was a big, it was a big discussion point. Yeah, I, you know, the question that always has to follow that is, uh, should Americans really be that worried about terrorism in Africa? Um, you know, we know that al-Qaeda and ISIS have affiliates. I'll use the air quotes again there uh, for you listening on the podcast. Um, but, um, you know, uh, neither al-Qaeda or ISIS is looking particularly strong at present. H how worried should we be about what's going on terrorism-wise? You know, my view about terrorism in Africa is that, of course, it's something to be worried about. No one should be cavalier in dismissing the the you know, the possibility that jihadist groups will find a foothold in Africa and that they'll use it um, to develop safe havens. But I personally feel that the threat of terrorism, particularly, you know, the possibility that terrorists who are radicalized in Africa, who have African passports, will somehow get to the United States and launch a terror attack. I, I think that's far in the future. Um, and it's certainly not something that I lose sleep over. Um, you know, that that's not to say that it's not a distant possibility that, that counter-terror specialists should be thinking about. But the way that it has come to dominate our thinking about U.S. military activities in Africa is really counterproductive. There are much bigger fish to fry, frankly. And... You know, what, most tragically, I think it, it causes us to lose sight of the fact that in Africa, you know, the Africans are our friends. And instead of 
regarding them as friends and allies in the war against terrorism, particularly in a place like Somalia. We tend to regard them as terrorists in waiting. Um, Somalia is, is a place where the U.S. has a difficult history because of the Black Hawk Down incident. But my experience in Somalia is that we have tremendous amounts in common with them tremendous amounts. Most especially, I, I think, their capitalist tendencies. You know, if, if you said, you know, the word capitalist to me and I had to point to a dictionary, I expect to see a Somali, a picture of a Somali person next to it. They're tremendously entrepreneurial. So we have the, this important commonality with the Somalis. And instead of in 2006, when we were worried about the course of events there and the possibility of al-Qaeda finding a stronghold, instead of going in there with investment and development and working on these commonalities, we took a hardline military approach, decided to force a government that no one had elected down their throats, and effectively treated the population as if they were an enemy that needed to be subdued. And it was exactly the wrong strategy. And it really has set Somalia back decades in terms of reawakening clan conflicts and causing famines and causing displacements and causing death and destruction. I mean, it it's really been just a, a phenomenally counterproductive way of thinking about terrorism. But unfortunately, it, it really is the major test case for what the U.S. is doing. Um, it, it really is a petri dish, this, this country of Somalia, when you're talking about U.S. strategy for terrorism in Africa. So I, I find it it very worth studying, but also very alarming when you look at what's been done. Yeah, that I mean, that is really alarming. As somebody who doesn't really focus on Africa, but who does focus on the Middle East, what what you're describing basically sounds like the Middle Eastization of our Africa policy, that we are switching from a posture that includes things like diplomacy, development, aid, and we're shifting over to basically a, a hardline military stance and that the military is pretty much the only tool we're using. That is the case. And, and not only that, it, since you mentioned the, the Middle East, uh, one of the things to bear in mind is that there are few Africanists involved in in the military, the U.S. military. We pointed out that AFRICOM is in Stuttgart. And most of the folks that are doing counter-terror policy in Africa are actually people who cut their teeth in Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere. And so they're coming to the African continent with a lot of assumptions based on their experiences combating terrorism in other parts of the world, particularly the Middle East. And so the the kind of approaches that an Africanist might recommend, as I've done, development, investment, diplomacy, these I don't think these things are are likely to be at the forefront, just given the the portfolios and backgrounds of the people who are directing the policy. Um, so just to back up on that for a second, one of the things that I mean, there are sort of two, theoretically two pillars of the U.S. strategy um, to combat terrorism after 9-11. Um, they both got ink, but only one of them, as we've discussed, actually got implemented. One of them, of course, is the military stuff. Uh, we're going to go sort of regime topple and, and all that sort of thing. But the other was to eliminate the fundamental sources of terrorism. And, and it was a very big deal for a while after 9-11 to talk about the threat of failed states and to talk about, you know, ungoverned spaces and things like that. And, and I think, you know, a lot of that was sort of fantastical thinking that there was a button somewhere with an off switch. And if we hit the right development, this or the right, you know, governance improvement that you can actually stop terrorism. I, th I think that was a fantasy. But um, it seems to me that in Africa, a lot of the challenges that 
we do think are connected to civil conflict, which then spawns terrorism, are in fact development related. So, I mean, that, that seems to be, and again, just going off stuff you read over without trying about Africa, this seems to be Africa's number one problem as a general thing. It's poor and it still needs a lot of help to develop. So maybe you could say a little bit about those sorts of threats and, and what the U.S. is doing or not about them. Yeah, I, I mean... Poverty is is definitely one of the drivers of of terrorist recruitment, and I think um, some studies that have been done recently um, with uh, recruits to Boko Haram um, and Al Shabaab um, in Nigeria and Kenya have um, pointed out that the number one reason that people join these these groups is often monetary. Um, they they can be compelled to work for these organizations for very small amounts of money. Um, however, it's also worth pointing out that there are many 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 countries in Africa. Um, all of all of them have a lower per capita income than the U.S. does, but very very few of them have a terror threat. Um, you know, throughout the whole of Southern Africa, for example, there there really isn't a terror organization that you could that's worth pointing to. Um, in the DRC, which has been at war, the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's been at war for decades. There isn't there isn't really a uh, an Al Qaeda linked terror group there. Um, you can argue that some are starting to use the the eastern part of Congo as a launching pad, but for the most part, you know, there's certainly not an indigenous Congolese terror organization. So it's not just poverty that is the source of the problem. Um, I I personally don't think development is problematic um, in terms of a response to terrorism. I think it's a very very long term approach, and surely one of the reasons that the military planners are probably hitting their head against a wall when they hear people like me talking about development is that it is something that's going to pay off a decade down the line, most likely. And it's not something that can really be driven by the U.S. government. It really is about investment. Um, and um, and it's, it's hard for the U.S. government to drive investment into Africa. It's not what anybody is paid to do, for the most part. I think, for me, the problem with the U.S. approach isn't even the fact, though, that we're not focused on development. It's more the fact that we're focused on picking winners and losers, um, which we often see as a precondition for development. If I were to, you know, to sit down at USAID or the State Department and say, I want to do a development project in Africa, the first question I'm going to get is, well, who's the government authority who's going to be there cutting the ribbon when we actually finish building this project? It's always about who, who is the local authority. And there's been a real discomfort, um, in particularly in the African context, with the idea that you can go in and do development in what feels like an anarchic situation. In Somalia, it's always been the U.S. approach to say, we need a government first. We need a government to authorize the, the presence of peacekeepers. We need a government to keep control of the territory to prevent the safe haven. But the reality is the creation of government is incredibly frightening to Somalis because it's a it's a society that's deeply divided on clan lines. It's post-conflict. There's never been a meaningful peace process. And as soon as you talk about a government, people are terrified because someone's going to be in charge of it. And it's likely not to be someone that they like. Well, witness Afghanistan. I yeah. Mean, this is not an unknown problem, is it's, it? It's mm -hmm. not an unknown problem. Um, but there's there's really been, despite the fact that it's it's an issue that we encounter over and over and over again as we try to solve this, you know, this terrible issue of terrorism, we, as a government and as as thinkers, haven't come up with a strategy. Okay, so what do you do when there isn't 
a central authority that you can rely on. You would think that we would have come up with something by now. And the lack of that kind of thinking is just, it, it's frankly catastrophic. Um, my view is, you know, I, I hate to speak about Afghanistan because I'm not a card-carrying expert on the Middle East, and I don't like people who sound off on things um, out of line. But certainly in the case of Somalia, and I would venture in the case of Afghanistan as well, a lot of time, blood, and treasure has been poured into these conflicts, and we haven't made a lot of progress. In fact, any any substantial progress, because we're so busy trying to do what we think is appropriate instead of trying to take a minimalist approach and saying, these are the conditions on the ground, what do we what can we do in the least disruptive way to foster conditions that are going to be safer for everybody? You know, it, it does kind of occur to me that the the other point you're raising here very subtly is we've been talking about U.S. policy towards Africa, which is basically the cardinal sin of talking about a region, right? We're not talking about a region that is homogenous in any way. You've outlined a bunch of different states that have different internal situations. Some are more problematic for the U.S. than others. Um and, and you're basically saying that we should be taking a much more tailored approach to a lot of those conflicts. So, I mean, we've talked a bit about Somalia already. Obviously, you've done a lot of work on that. But you also mentioned uh, earlier before we started recording that you really wanted to talk about Ethiopia because that's another interesting situation. It's another interesting situation and it's the polar opposite of Somalia. Um, Ethiopia is is the regional powerhouse. It's a country of about 100 million people. And it's considered one of the success stories of Africa in economic terms. Because it's a country, everyone remembers Ethiopia from the famine in the 1990s and all those those Bono songs. Um, but subsequently, Ethiopia has stabilized and has really made tremendous strides uh, in, in economic terms um, to industrialize, to raise the standard of living for a lot of people. Um, and the U.S. Has, has used them as a partner. Um, in particular, it's dumped a lot of money into assisting the Ethiopian government to become an effective counterterrorism partner. And in the process, the Ethiopian government has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and stronger. That last year, for example, the U.S. gave more than a billion dollars in assistance to the Ethiopian government and many hundreds of millions of dollars more to support Ethiopia's intervention in Somalia, which means, although we don't directly buy them arms that we admit to, um, we do give them training, we give them logistic support, we give them intelligence. It's known that the NSC has given the Ethiopian government spyware that it uses to track the to track the activities of groups like Al Shabaab, but also to track the activities of political opponents, Americans that they don't like, a whole lot of misbehavior, frankly. Um, and so, what's happened is that Ethiopia has become this massive Goliath, a government that is so much bigger, stronger, more powerful, and more equipped than it would be if it were just an African government relying on its tax receipts. It's very similar, actually, to what happened with the Siad Barre regime in Somalia before the collapse of that state. During the Cold War, both the U.S. and Russia were funneling all kinds of support to the Siad Barre regime. It became this megalith. And ultimately, when it fell, it fell really hard. And Somalia has been in anarchy ever since. And unfortunately, it's beginning to look a little bit like Ethiopia is also reaching that phase. The Ethiopian government 
is dominated by a tiny, tiny minority of people called the Tigrayans, who make up less than 6% of the population. And they've absolutely dominated political and economic life in the country. They've benefited extravagantly from growth, from economic growth, while the rest of the population really has not. And what's been happening over the last couple of years is a series of protests that have shaken the country to the core and recently caused the resignation of the prime minister um, amidst really a, a, you know, a destabilizing round of, of public protests in which hundreds of thousands of people have been on the street. And the Ethiopian government has absolutely no way out of this mess. For the U.S., this prevents a, it presents a tremendous problem because Ethiopia is the background of our counterterror strategy. They're the majority of the soldiers that are pursuing our counterterror objectives in Somalia, for example. They're a good part of the peacekeeping troops in South Sudan, which is another major humanitarian crisis on the African continent. Um, and they are um, a big part of our intelligence gathering in that region as well. And so as Ethiopia becomes unstable, really calls into question again um, the entire U.S. strategy in the Horn of Africa. And it's not even making the news, which is really distressing. And it's something we just haven't – it's another thing we just haven't learned our lesson on because, again, this sort of promoting and bolstering – governments that are semi-authoritarian, that are dictatorial in order to, you know, promote security interests in the region. We've seen that story before and it never ends well. No. And there's academic literature now starting to come out about this very process of when you train and fund the military, you, you improve their skills and capabilities so radically compared to everyone else in society that the power in society tilts further and further towards them and it makes coups more likely, it makes oppression more likely and emboldening these, emboldening these regimes. I and mean, we're seeing it with Saudi Arabia and UAE and Yemen. You, you sell them weapons, you give them assurances and so on. And what do they do? They start using their militaries more often. In the case of Somalia, it's really worrying because it's not only Ethiopia, but Uganda and Burundi have also over the past decade, been their, their armies have been armed and professionalized entirely at the expense of the U.S. taxpayer. And these are not countries with good human rights records. No. They're really not. And it, it's terrifying because these are the countries that will have terror problems in the future, and we are building them. The United States, I was horrified to learn, and a little bit horrified to learn, I didn't know this already, doesn't have an assistant secretary of state uh, for, for Africa right now, but it does have about 6,000 or so as far as we know, military personnel spread out uh, over 46 various outposts, uh, bases uh, of various kinds. Um, how would you characterize the U.S. military presence in Africa today? Um, you know, I would say it's hard to characterize. The U.S. Um, is doing so much on the African continent in such a quiet way. Um, the kind of missions that American personnel are undertaking very widely. I mean, you, you do have a lot of troops who are who are CBs, you know, who are out there doing development projects, who are trying to correct the impression that's been made of AFRICOM. And I don't want to undercut those efforts or saying that those are not the kind of activities that are taking place. American troops are essential for delivering humanitarian relief to places like South Sudan. Um, but you also increasingly have American boots on the ground fighting the war on terrorism. And they're doing it in a very 
quiet way. The fact that there were four troops killed in Niger recently shocked everyone because it really wasn't understood that America had a ground presence in West Africa. We're, we're really, our troops are conducting dangerous counterterrorism missions completely under the radar. You know, U.S. forces have also been doing things like, for several years, um, assisting Ugandan special forces to hunt Joseph Kony, who the leader of the LRA, a, a horrific bad guy, not something that anybody would object to. But also in the in the jungle, training Ugandan special forces to track an individual. And you kind of wonder why they were doing that. I kind of think it's not about the LRA personally, though some public pressure was brought to, was brought to bear on the U.S. government to respond to the LRA. The reality is that it was a useful mission for the U.S. government to continue bolstering the Ugandan army, giving them these specialized skills, teaching them this art of, of capturing you know, wanted terrorists, frankly. I mean, Joseph Kony is a terrorist. Um, but it's kind of an example of how diverse the U.S. military activities are. Of course, there are large numbers of U.S. troops in Somalia, there are large numbers of U.S. troops stationed in various parts of the region training. Um, many, many African officials, uh, African generals, African lieutenants are brought from Africa to the U.S. War College to receive training in American military techniques. It, I mean, it's it's a real cooperation. Um, the amount of exchange that's going on, um, it, it's really hard to capture. It's extensive. Um, and I, I would have a really hard time sort of saying, well, you know, I, I would have a hard time characterizing it, frankly. It is a lot about terrorism, but it's also a lot about building bridges. Um, and I, I think it has some positive benefits, but also a lot of potential to be, uh, you know, to, to be quite destabilizing. It doesn't really seem like there's a coherent strategy at work here. Um, and, and this obviously seems to date back further than the Trump administration, though admittedly this administration does seem to be dialing up the number of troops on the counterterrorism front. But it, it just really doesn't seem like we have any coherent approach to the continent other than sort of situational, keep doing what we've been doing. You know, if I had been asked to characterize the U.S. strategy for Africa – couple of years ago, at the end of the Obama administration, I think it, it was very coherent. Um, what you heard a lot about was this idea of African solutions to African problems, um, which means that you pay poor African troops to fight and die in the war on terrorism, which isn't really what I consider an African problem, but all the same. Um, the idea was basically that Americans didn't want to see American boots on the ground in Africa. We don't want to see American troops dying in a place so far away. And so what the U.S. government did was they engaged, and you saw the strategy in Somalia, for example, the Ethiopian army, the Burundian army, the Ugandan army, and many other armies in Nigeria, Mali, other places, to be the pointy end of the spear on behalf of the U.S. military. And there was a lot of rosy rhetoric surrounding this strategy instead of sort of my characterization, which is you you pay poor men to go and die because we don't want to. It was regarded as building up, supporting these armies, professionalizing them. A lot of emphasis given to the fact that these guys get human rights training, for example. <laughs> There's a, a lot of effort to sort of justify it as 
the U.S. government is teaching African troops to solve the problem of terrorism as if it were a homegrown phenomenon instead of something that's imported. Nowadays, I think people are more and more aware of the, the downsides of that strategy. You know, in Somalia, the, Ethi the Ethiopian army was incredibly brutal. For the first several years of its presence in Somalia, the Ugandan and Burundian armies were too. And that actually fueled a lot of recruitment into al-Shabaab. When you have poorly trained troops who are dumped into a hostile situation, they use their guns. They use their mortars. A lot of people get killed. It actually turns out, in some cases, to be very counterproductive. And so there is a cost to, to doing this on the cheap. And that's basically what this, this outsourcing of, of the counterterror battle is. It's early days in the Trump administration, and I do see a lot more direct action by U.S. forces. And there's a trend that was starting to develop in the Obama administration. A lot of deployment of special forces to get the bad guys to make sure it was done efficiently and well. Um, and a growing awareness that the strategy of trying to back governments, as we've done in Somalia, as we've done in Ethiopia, and to try to empower militaries, as you were mentioning, um, it has real real downsides. The second and third order effects are quite frightening. And so there is, it seems to be a little bit of a move towards using American troops to take direct action when it's warranted. I think the problem is that when you do that, you have to have real discretion. You have to know who the bad guys really are. Um, otherwise, it just looks like a whack-a-mole strategy. And it seems quite brutal to local populations because a lot of people are dying. And particularly in Somalia, the lists of people who have been killed as terrorists in a country that frankly isn't much of a threat to the United States is really alarming. And I think there has yet to be a discussion to say, okay, if we're really going to use American special forces to go in there and kill large numbers of people, what are the guidelines? What are the what are the potentials for blowback? Is this a new strategy? Is this simply convenience? It, it, there's a lot of questions, but also a, a lack of of real coherent debate on the subject. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I guess you know one of the um, concerns I have is that. You know, it's like you, you you're throwing out a lot of fishing lines, um, and at some point, one of them is going to hook a really big fish, maybe bigger than you thought. And I, I I'm worried about the slippery slopes. I, I guess I might be too old, but I think of oh, we only have special advisors in Vietnam. Uh, that's not a big problem. And then the, the psychological, um, you know. Uh, a buy-in to these conflicts can grow from a small commitment to a bigger commitment and all of a sudden you're actually sending U.S. troops to Libya or you're sending U.S. troops to, you know, Niger or wherever or Somalia or Ethiopia and you're actually fighting a real war all of a sudden or you get sucked into Yemen, uh, you know, one of these kinds of things. And I, I just, you know, I, I worry about being too active uh, overseas for, for many of these reasons. You, you know, we see a small brush fire, we pour gas on it inadvertently. But then all of a sudden we have a real fire to deal with. I mean, that's uh, it just seems a little crazy to me. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think one of the biggest threats is that, you know, these are complicated, complicated political situations that as Americans, we have a pretty poor understanding of. Um, you know, in Somalia, there have been so many instances in which U.S. forces have received intelligence from either the Ethiopians or from the Somali government, and it's just not been good intelligence. And people have been killed, and they've been the wrong people. And the fact that you have powerful 
superbly armed U.S. soldiers descending on Somali populations and killing people, it's just not a good look. It embeds the U.S. in a conflict that we really should not be involved in. Um, you know, it, and it's not only the backing of these governments, which are so problematic, but just the the perception that that the U.S. government is going and sticking its hands in places that it doesn't belong. That has a big impact. Um, and I think that there's just not enough attention given to assessing those the, the harm that that does in, in the grand scheme of things. So last question then, if you could change U.S. strategy towards, towards Africa, Red Hole, sort of, uh, what, what are those changes going to look like, sort of broad brush? You know, I think the biggest shift that needs to happen is we've got to get away from this dependence on unreliable regimes. Um, and that's probably a, a recommendation that applies a lot more broadly than Africa. But in the African context, it's it's really just, just the benefits that you receive from pursuing this kind of strategy are just not enough to warrant the costs in my, in my point of view. Um, the U.S. needs a strategy in Africa that puts the African people first, that regards the African public as the first line of defense. Because Africans generally, and I do hate to generalize about Africans, but in my experience of working all over the continent my whole life, they are not prone to radicalization for the most part. There are pockets of Africa where that's not true. But generally speaking, Africans are focused on bread and butter issues. They want development. They want entrepreneurial opportunities. They want investment. They want growth. They do not want foreigners coming from the Middle East pouring radical ideologies down their throats and trying to persuade them that really they should be focused on Washington and bombing the American public. It's just, it's, it's really not something that's an easy sell if you're a jihadist coming from the Middle East to persuade African publics that's what they're supposed to do. And I'll point out that al-Shabaab, which is al-Qaeda's partner in East Africa, has never actually launched a direct assault on American interests, even in the 10 years that they've allegedly been an affiliate of al-Qaeda. kind of shows it's not where their interests are. And so we need a strategy that accepts that and tries to to take that existing reality and firm it up instead of trying to go into a country like Somalia and reinvent it, which is just a ridiculously unrealistic strategy. We need something that sort of says, look, the American, the, uh, the African public are our biggest allies and our biggest assets. What can we do to make them our partners and to strengthen their commitment to the kinds of, of ideologies that we all share, which is capitalism, which is growth, which is, you know, peaceful homes for our families. And if we were doing that, in the first place, it would be cheaper. And in the second place, it would be a lot more effective if we really were to trust um, the Somali public. You know, I was in Somaliland a long time ago in 2005. And I think it was 2005. I was monitoring an election. And al-Qaeda actually sent a, a group of of foreigners to Somaliland to try to target the election monitors. They landed in Somaliland and within, I think it was four days, they had been fingered by the local population and arrested. Because the locals said, we don't want you coming in here and disrupting our elections and ruining our reputation, no way. And so without any assistance at all from the army or from the American military or anybody else, they caught these guys and 
and lock them up. And that's the kind of thing that I think can work and, and can be expected to work in Africa. And they're just, you don't hear those anecdotes spoken about, and you should. Um, because really, it's communities in Africa that are are working well. And we need to be bent more on supporting them and less on sort of the intrusion of foreign, even African forces into those communities and, and the disruption that it causes. It really does so much more harm than good. Well, that's a fantastic way to end things. I hope we do all those things that you just said, um, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, thanks to Bronwyn for joining us today, and thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, to continue the conversation, you can always find us on Twitter at hashtag FPPowerProblems. Thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you like the episode, uh, we'd love a good review on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>